You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, and bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so back in August, there were a number of videos that surfaced on the news uh, of Times Square in New York, and they showed thousands and thousands of people running and screaming and ducking for cover, pure pandemonium over what they thought was an active shooter situation. And so video after video from different angles showed countless panicked people darting for cover. They're clinging to their children. They're running so fast and so fiercely that their shoes are literally falling off of their feet, thinking that this was it for them. When the multiple police showed up on the scene, they discovered that it was not an active shooter situation, but it was actually a group of motorcycles that had backfired. And this story really serves to illustrate that what would have typically caused alert today now automatically causes alarm. What would have typically caused, well, that's an odd sound. Now, we jump straight to a sense of alarm. For the 21st century person, our margin for pausing and pondering and then wisely responding to potential threats has all but been eliminated. That margin is gone. And one of the ways that you can describe the time that we live in right now is an age of panic. There is panic over domestic terrorism, panic over the threat of climate change, panic over economic instability, panic over what the heck's going to happen in 2020, panic over the threat of disease, pure panic that the world is literally falling apart in our generation. And whether we recognize it or not, most people today live with a certain level of angst and fear that's resting just beneath the surface and is ready to manifest in the form of panic at the slightest potential threat. All of us carry that angst on edge about what is going to happen in our life and in our world. And this is the moment that we live in. This is our time. And this is the the moment that we, as the people of God, the church, must now learn to navigate in faithfulness and in hope. There's a scene from The Lord of the Rings that I think sums it up well. (laughs) Goodness. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given. Truth is, I hope they told you this, we don't choose when we were born. 
We don't choose the times and the generations that we are born into, but the decision that is ours today is how we're going to respond, how we're going to respond in our age of panic. Now, it's probably important to note that the Gospel of Mark was written into a time where it felt like for that generation that the world was falling apart. Historically speaking, the first century was a time of massive, massive upheaval in the world. There were wars, there was tyranny, there were natural disasters, volcanoes covering entire large populations of people. It was just a crazy century. In fact, one historian named Tacitus wrote this, the history on which I'm entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, and horrible even in peace. Even when things are peaceful, life sucks. It's horrible. And so the question for us is, what are Jesus' instructions for us, whether we find ourselves in the first century, a century of upheaval, or the 21st century, which I would consider a generation of upheaval as well? What are Jesus' words into our time and our cultural moment? Look at me, verse 7. Jesus said, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. How do we respond in moments of terror and fear? Do not be alarmed. Refuse to panic. Refuse to panic. In fact, this is how one of the great preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, described faith itself. He said, faith is a refusal to panic. Faith looks trial and pain and struggle and uncertainty square in the face and and resists the urge to panic. Resists the urge to fear and be overcome by fear. See, faith has the ability to Hold honesty and hope in tension. We're able to be honest with the way things are in this world. We're able to be honest about the brokenness that we see. We don't have to bury our heads in the sand. But at the same time, we're able to hold in tension great hope. This is what is offered for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation, honesty. But take heart. For I have overcome the world. Your life is going to be a life of struggle and suffering and challenge. Let's be honest about that. But I will give you an opportunity for hope. Here's where to rest your hope. I have overcome the world. So there's a lot here today. Oh my gosh, there's 37 verses. So that's typically a little bit longer uh, than I'm I'm used to preaching. So what we're going to do is we're just going to ask one question with a few answers to this Text. Here's the question that I want us to ponder together today. How do we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? Supposing that we've been called to be agents of hope, how do we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? And the first thing is this. We need to discern the times. In fact, five times within this chapter, Jesus urges his disciples to be discerning. He says, be on guard. He says, be alert. He says, See that no one leads you astray. These are all variations of the same Greek word for discerning. Be discerning. Discernment. In order for us to make sense of the chaotic world that we live in and and be agents of hope within it, we must become, 
by God's grace, discerning people. And we, we specifically need to be discerning about the times that we live in. And, and Mark 13 helps us to do that. Mark 13 is what is known as apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic scripture, which is the text that we're looking at today. And the thing about apocalyptic scripture is that there's often an immediate context and then a more future-focused fulfillment. So if you feel like you're having a hard time navigating what Jesus is talking about, this explains it because there's an immediate context and then a future-focused context, both in view. And so here are the two events that Jesus is talking about. The destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus Christ, Christ's return, and the expanse of time that is between them. The destruction of the temple, Christ's coming again. And so when Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, what's he talking about? Because these disciples lived and then they died and Christ hasn't returned. What's he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And he's talking about the turmoil and chaos that would lead all the way up until that date. See, history tells us that in the decades following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians were severely persecuted. They were hated because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ, specifically under the harsh ruling and and leadership of Nero. And just as Jesus had predicted and has talked about now multiple times, history also tells us that in the year 70 AD, the emperor's adopted son Titus and his troops came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, ransacked the city, and killed thousands and thousands of people. So on one hand, what Jesus is predicting is fulfilled in the first century. But on another, Jesus is foreshadowing what's to come. That's the difficult thing. And I'm not going to make it any easier for you because it's supposed to be a little bit of a mental exercise and a heart exercise. That's the tension that's being held here. What has been fulfilled and what is yet to be accomplished. So look at me in verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So when people are out there saying the end is now, the time has come, Jesus is saying, no, 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 it will only be the beginning. And the way he does this, which is sort of a relevant uh, illustration for us as a church, is we've had a couple babies born in the church this week. He illustrates it with birth pain. He essentially says that when you look around and you only see chaos and you only see disorder and you're convinced that it's go time, that it's time to grab the bags, it's time to grab the car seat, and it's time to jump in the car and to race to the hospital, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's called Braxton Hicks. <laughs> That's that little flutter where you're like, is it time? Is it maybe time? And you get to the hospital, and the nurse is like, honey, go home. <laughs> it's just the beginning, he says, of the birth pains. Now, it is coming. The promise is there. In fact, the scripture refers to to creation as being pregnant. We're standing on a pregnant earth. Those little rumblings that we feel are the rumblings, the Braxton Hicks of a world that's ready to give birth. 
God is bringing about the birth of a new world. It's a new creation marked by total peace, total justice, total life, total flourishing. No more tears. No more death. Like the greatest world you could ever imagine, just like times a billion. But it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And on that day, it will not be like those Braxton Hicks where you feel the flutters and you're like, is it time? It could be time. I'm not sure. When it's time, it's going to be clear as day, Jesus is saying. There'll be no doubt. Here's the interesting thing. In Jesus' first coming, Jesus came veiled and mysterious. In fact, the apostle John says many did not recognize him. But unlike the first coming of Jesus Christ, when he returns, there will be no uncertainty about his presence. In fact, as my boy C.S. Lewis put it, for this time, it will be God without disguise. There will be no question, is it time? It will be clear for all to see. So discerning the times means recognizing where we are in the story of God's redemption. Where, where we find ourselves in the story. Now, I, I hear a lot about the end times. In fact, when I was growing up, that was all the church ever talked about was like end times. It seemed like all the best-selling Christian books were about end times. Here's the truth, and I'm probably going to unsettle some today. The reality is that the church has been in the end times since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We're in the end times, and we've been in the end times. Christ inaugurated the end times. You read throughout the scriptures. You read throughout history. You even look at the world globally. We're sort of an anomaly in our freedoms. But you look at the world, the church globally throughout the world. The church is in tribulation. That's not a future forecast. That is now. The church has and is in tribulation. And so Jesus' rule and his reign has been inaugurated into this world through his life and his death and his resurrection. But... The kingdom of God will not be fully realized until he returns. And so what that means is that we find ourselves in the already but not yet of the kingdom. It's here, but it's coming. It's now, but it's later. It's come through Christ, but it will fully consummate a his return. And we, we hang in the balance there. And in between, in that already but not yet, that's not an easy time to live. Jesus acknowledges that. Things aren't always clear. Things are hard to discern, but we need to remember where we are in the story. And so how do we look around at everything that is wrong with this world? And it is not hard to look around and see things wrong with this world. But how do we look around and see everything that's wrong with this world and not panic? How do you like, still be a human being and, and not panic? And the answer is because Jesus promised to renew it. We, we know what's coming. Christian, you already got the end of the book. Like all the spoiler alerts are out. There's no waiting to know how this thing ends. The twist has been revealed. Christ is coming back. God's going to set all things right. Every wrong will be made right. There are many variations of a popular quote that goes something like, you can't understand the now unless you know where we've been. You can't make sense of the present unless you know the past. And while this is true, Jesus is introducing a revolutionary idea here, and it's that God's future determines the present. 
that you can't make sense of the now without understanding what's to come. God, I prayed for healing. You said that you would heal us. I prayed for healing and I'm not healed. What's going on? Why? Because you're in the already but not yet. Where some are healed and some are not. God, I, I'm trying everything I can do to mend these broken relationships, and you promise a reconciled people where the, the dividing lines have been torn down, and yet I have these broken relationships in my life. What's going on? Why? Because you're in the already but not yet. Christ has come, and yet Christ is coming again. Friend, don't look around to find the hope that you're looking for. Hope looks beyond. That's the nature of hope. It looks beyond what you see. It looks beyond what you experience. It looks beyond the pain. You've got to discern the times and peer through the chaos and the disorder in order to see with eyes of hope. To be a believer means to cling to the promises of what's to come. That's the nature of a promise. God says, I will do it. And so we wait in confidence that what God says he's going to do, He's going to do. How do we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? Secondly, we need to detach from false hopes. We need to detach our lives from false hopes. See, in times of instability, again, we live in a time of instability. In, in times of instability, we as humans naturally look for stable things to give us a sense of inner peace and security. When our world is in chaos, we will find maybe even small things in our lives that we can count on to give us a sense of peace and security. In the first century, for the first century believer, the temple was this. It was a symbol of resilience. It was a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of beauty and blessing from God. Just like how we have in America the bald eagle or the, the, the American flag is our symbol of courage and loyalty and, and, and freedom in America. So the temple was their symbol of national pride. That was their thing. And so when we read that the disciples marveled at the stones, it's easy to, to, to imagine that the disciples are lovers and, appreciation, and appreciators of architecture. Like, oh my gosh, those stones, the way they're put together, that's so interesting. Let me, let me, you know, like pin that to my Pinterest. That's a beautiful design. I love this. This was an expression of longing for security. This is not an appreciation for architecture. This is a deep longing to find something stable in this world. See, when our freedoms are threatened, we will typically look to place our hopes in things that seem most stable in our lives. We are probably all doing that in some fashion. Whether it's hope in a relationship, whether it's hope in a career, whether it's hope in a political party, whether it's hope in our wealth or our wit or our looks, you name it. We, we scan the horizon of our lives looking for something that we can count on. But then comes the warning. Look at me in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What's he saying? He's saying this temple, as beautiful and powerful and stable as it appears right now in this moment, 
it will be but dust. It's coming down. And in the end, it will not fulfill you. In the end, it will not save you. In the end, it will not protect you. And if you cling to it, it will lead to your demise as well. See, Jesus is saying something here that would have been extremely shocking. You don't mess with the temple in Israel. That would be like burning a flag. You just like don't do that. Why would you talk like this about the temple? That's why people are so outraged about Jesus' words against the temple. And so when Jesus talks about the, the abomination of the desolation, which sounds like a metal band out of Eastern Europe or something like that, it's actually a word or a term borrowed from the prophet Daniel talking about foreign leadership that will come into Jerusalem and desecrate the temple. He says, when the abomination of desolation comes, when that time comes, flee. Flee. Don't cling to the temple. Flee from the temple. That would have been mind-blowing. That would have been like the place where we defend to the death. And you're saying to flee from it. Now, does God mean that we flee from the people of God? No. That removing ourselves from the community of faith is never the solution. We are always stubbornly loyal to the family of faith. Well, then does Jesus mean that we're to flee from danger? When danger comes, run. No, no. In fact, the Christian church flourished in the Roman Empire in a time where they displayed the love of Jesus Christ in times of famine, in times of persecution, in times of fires. They stayed in order to extend the love and care of Jesus Christ when everyone else left. He's not saying flee from the people of God. He's not saying flee from danger. So then what is Jesus saying? What I believe Jesus is saying here is don't be entangled in the fate of a doomed nation and its power structure. You're not to die on this hill. Because when God shakes things up, and he will, and he did, and he will in our nation as well, that which is not built on the rock of Jesus Christ will not remain. And when it all goes down, and you're clinging to it, you'll go down with it. And the rubble of that temple and the rubble of that structure will crush you too. Flee. Brian Chappell shares the illustration of a lumberjack that came into a grove of trees intending to chop them all down. That's what lumberjacks do. That one's for free. And so he comes into, I see some flannel out there. It's lumberjack time. Um, So... The lumberjack comes into this grove to chop all these trees down. He looks up in the tree. He sees a mother bird building a nest. And out of care for this bird, he begins to shake the tree. Because he knows if the bird stays in the trees when he cuts the trees down, that bird's going to be in danger. And so he shakes the tree in order to move the, the bird. This bird looks down at the lumberjack and thinks to herself, what, what, is, what is this guy doing? What did I ever do to him? And so he shakes the tree enough to get her to move from one tree to the next, and she begins to build her her nest in the next tree over. And sure enough, he goes over to that tree, and he begins to shake that tree as well. And she's thinking, what what is going on here? And tree to tree to tree to tree, he follows her, shaking that tree, frustrating that bird, until she finally flies to a rock cliff nearby the grove and begins to build her nest there. And then and only then, the, the lumberjack knows that she'll be safe. 
the illustration goes like this, that this is often how God works in our lives. There are things that God shakes up in our lives, and we're wondering, why would you do that? That was, that was my one thing of stability. That was the one thing that I could wake up tomorrow morning counting on, and that it's, it's shaking. It's unstable. Unstable. And the illustration points out it's because it all is eventually coming down. Relationships, careers, political parties, wealth, your wit, your looks, it's all going to crumble. It's all going to crumble. And if you're clinging to them, the rubble will crush you. Detach your hopes from that, what, that which can't save you and place them in Jesus Christ, who is described as the cornerstone of God's new temple. In fact, Jesus says, flee to the mountains. The mountains in Scripture are always a picture of God's faithfulness and stability. Flee to God. Cling to God. Rest your hopes on God because everything else will fail you. How do we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? Third, we declare the good news. We declare the good news of Jesus. Now, Jesus sets the stage here of what's going to happen in the end times. There will be false prophets misrepresenting God and offering people false hope. Sound familiar? There will be bad news everywhere. No matter where you turn, you're going to hear about despair and gloom and doom. Sound familiar? There will be rumors and threats spreading. Sound familiar? The, the world will even bring accusation against you. Even this last weekend, there was a, a warning shot fired at the church by a particular politician. Sound familiar? See, not only do we live in an age of panic, but we live in what's been called the, uh, the age of outrage. Where everywhere you turn, you hear polarizing speech, divisive speech. And, and it's really easy to get caught up in it. In, in fact, I heard about a study recently. Uh, the psychology department at New York University, they analyzed over half of a million social media posts over the course of a year. And what they found was that social media posts that include emotionally triggering words, divisive words, antagonistic words, Raise the likelihood of that post being reposted or liked by 15 to 20%. And so as you incorporated one to two to three more triggering words, it made the, the, the percentage increase from 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 and so on. And so because the algorithms that exist on social media, what ended up happening was the outrage posts get pushed to the front. It's what you see. You don't see the calm and collected and like normal people talk over here. You see the outrage. You see the emotionally triggering words. And therefore, the outrage then sets the cultural narrative for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are anymore and, and, and really what you're for as long as you're loud enough about what you're against. And then people will listen. And so in the midst of all of this disheartening noise, what are we to do? Just perpetuate the noise? Just perpetuate the outrage? No. Jesus gives us actually really clear instruction on how to respond 
when the rhetoric is discouraging, when the rhetoric is outraged, when the rhetoric is antagonistic. Look with me in verse 9. Jesus says, witness before them. I love the picture that Jesus is giving here. Essentially, the call to the church is to take all the rhetoric of doom and despair and exchange it with the courage and hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're antagonistic towards me. I'm going to offer you courage. You spin hate at me. I'm going to offer you hope. You're against me. Let me tell you about the good news of a God who is for you, who loves you, and who loves you greater than your hate. And loves you greater than your antagonism. And is able to even overcome your darkness and despair. Ed Stetzer, as Ed Stetzer put it, this is how we bring our best when the world is at its worst. That's the call. To not just get swept up in it, but to bring our best. How do we bring our best when we witness the good news of Jesus Christ? This is how the church shines when it takes an honest look into the darkness and brokenness of this world, but then prophetically speaks hope, the hope of Jesus Christ, into it. There's a man named Vedran Smelovich, probably messing up his name there. Uh, I, sh- I shared this story a couple years ago. He became, he, he, was, uh, he became known as the cellist of Sarajevo. In, in 1992, while there was, where they were in the midst of destruction, the destruction of war and turmoil in Bosnia, What he did was he dressed himself, I think we're going to have a picture of it here. He dressed himself in his full suit, and he sat in the middle of these huge bomb craters and played his cello every single day. And what he would do is he would travel throughout the city, even in heavily sniper locations, bullets flying. This is an active war zone. And every day in the midst of chaos, he showed up, he suited up, and he played his cello. And he became a beacon of hope to the city as his sounds filled the streets. Where there was fear and chaos, the sound and beauty of music overcame it. Friend, again, we don't choose the time that we live in, and neither neither did he. But we can choose how we respond to our time. And although we do live in a very difficult time and a very discouraging time, it is actually a unique opportunity for the beauty of of the gospel of Jesus Christ to resound in our time. In fact, I would say that people are aching for it. If you look around our city, the city of Stockton, and you pay attention, you'll begin to hear a lot of words like this, restore, reinvent, revitalize, renew, change, and transform. Hello? Those are like our words. <laughs> you, you stole those. You borrowed those. And what it does is it reveals the longing and the angst of the human heart to be renewed, to be restored, to be transformed. People are looking for this. They're looking for a solution to fix what has gone wrong with the world. And so that means that it creates a unique opportunity for the church to say, let me tell you about the Christian gospel that actually answers life's deepest questions. Questions like, how should things be? Let me tell you about God's good creation. Well, what's gone wrong with this world? The scriptures tell us about the reality of sin and evil. But how are we gonna fix it? Jesus can, and he has. Came into this world to redeem it, 
to lay down his life in our place, to live the life that we couldn't and die the death that we deserve, to overcome the power of evil and sin and Satan, to usher in a good and healing kingdom of light. Well, how, how can I imagine this world being once everything is restored? Let me tell you about this heavenly vision of revelation of a new Jerusalem that's coming down to earth. And this God dwelling with man, and even says that he's going to take his thumb and he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to overcome death. And this is going to be a world teeming with life. Let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus. How can we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? Fourth, we need to depend on God's justice. We need to depend on God's justice. Now, one of the major news stories of 2019 was the trial and then subsequent death of Jeffrey Epstein. The story is long and it's complicated, but in 2008, he was able to sort of sidestep justice, get a little slap on the wrist. But his day of reckoning was finally coming. The day of justice for countless victims of Epstein was finally coming, where a number of these sexual abuse cases now had a wealth of evidence against him. A number of his sort of elites were, that were associated with him uh, were, were going to be kind of wrapped up in this as well. And then, not shocking anyone, he dies. Death by suicide. And I remember reading a news article, I think it was the day of or the day after, that read like this. If Epstein's arrest looked like a chance to finally hold rotten elites to account, his death represents one final escape from accountability. Think about those words. His death represents one final escape from accountability. And as I read that article, I remember having almost a visceral reaction and saying to myself, no, he didn't. He has not. No, he will not escape accountability, nor will anyone. At the heart of the Christian hope is the good news of justice. And it's easy to look around the world and see all of, well, it's easy to see a lot of injustice in the world. It's what we read about in the news almost on a daily basis. And it's easy to think that a majority of those who are unjust, those who oppress, are not going to be held accountable, that their atrocities are going to slip through the cracks of time. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for those who care about justice in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news specifically for the oppressed because it proclaims that no sin and no evil will go unpunished. None. Listen, not an ounce. Now, the justice of God may not feel like good news especially for the unjust and the unrepentant. Because the justice of God means and speaks of the judgment and condemnation of a holy God who has wrath against evil and sin. But it's really good news for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because it means that for the child of God who is united with Christ through faith, that he, Jesus, was judged and condemned in my place. So God's justice came down on Jesus so that God's mercy could come down on me. My sin was punished. Jesus took the rap. He took the fall. 
So either way, justice is going to be served for every sinner. Either Jesus will absorb God's punishment for you. Listen to me. Or you will absorb it for yourself. This is how the church is able to absorb hate. This is how the church is able to absorb hurt. This is how the church is able to absorb persecution and respond with mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because we know that our sins were punished through Jesus Christ. And ultimately, one day, God will have vengeance. I don't need to get even because I know that God will. And what he doles out will be much better than me. In the first coming of Jesus, he came in humility to be judged in our place. But in the second coming, Jesus is going to come in triumph, in power, and in glory to judge the nations, the living and the dead. And on that day, no one, no matter how powerful, how wealthy, how well-connected, how a part of the good old boys club that that individual is, no one will escape accountability. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Let me, come, let me end with this last point. How do we live as agents of hope in an age of panic? Determined to stay awake. Verses 32 through 37, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, this is Christ's word to us today, stay awake. Now, is there any doubt what Jesus is trying to say here? Stay awake. But then the question is, what are we staying awake for? And what Jesus is talking about here is the appearance of Jesus at the end of the age, his return. Now, where you are in terms of faith today will determine how you interpret a passage like this. Because for some, they will read this and assume that this is sort of like a threat. Jesus comes as a thief in the night, sort of like this. You better sleep with one eye open because he's coming. Remember, this is being spoken to his disciples. And the heart of apocalyptic scripture is hope. For the child of God, the command to stay awake is something very different. It's filled with hope. It's filled with wonder. Like an anxious child on the night before a big day, that child so overwhelmed by the possibilities of what the new day will bring that they just can't sleep. I remember as a kid, there was this iconic Disneyland commercial with a little boy like, sneaks into the girl's room and says, are you awake? And they can't sleep. And, and the mom comes in and says, you, go to, you need to go to sleep. And they say, we're too excited to sleep. We're too excited to sleep. This is the heart of Jesus' command. Stay awake. Charles Spurgeon gives a little bit more sanctified illustration, so I'll, I'll just read him here. On the night before August 1st, 1830, the slaves in the British West Indies never went to bed. They stayed awake because at daybreak, they would be set free from their slavery. 
Tens of thousands of them went to their places of worship and spent the night singing praises to God, waiting for the first glimmer of daylight. Just before dawn, they sent some onto the top of the hills so that they could signal the others that the day had broken out of the depths of the horrors of slavery. When daylight came, they would taste the joys of freedom. This is what Jesus is saying when he's saying, stay awake. The day is coming. Freedom is on its way. Don't be caught sleeping. Fam, stay awake. Because Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray. Father.